Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in Wiltshire. It's a wonderful, sunny June day, and I wish I was playing cricket this afternoon. Hello, it's Richard Heller. It's an equally beautiful day in south-east London. And I may well be playing some sort of cricket later this afternoon. And we have today a glorious guest, uh, somebody who I've been honoured to know for a quarter of a century. Uh, he's the, one of the great, or perhaps the greatest historian of South African cricket, the author of a number of monumental works, pioneering works about the history of the game, going back to the very origins of, of, of cricket, concentrating a lot on on black cricket under apartheid and on the struggle. Andre Odendahl, who played cricket himself at Cambridge University when he was at St John's, he played a lot in, in South Africa, but played mainly under apartheid, played for the non, non-white teams. Um, he went on to curate uh, Robin Island, where Nelson Mandela had been, had been held for so many years. He's a significant figure in the, in the struggle, uh, Andre, welcome. Thanks very much, Peter. It's uh, lovely to join you and Richard from Cape Town. We're not going to be outdone by Wiltshire at this stage because we've had rain and storm for four days, but the sun is trying to peak out. So I think it's going to be a nice day here as well. But thank you very much for having me on the program. And um, I have had the good fortune to live through very interesting times in South Africa. And you mentioned Robben Island Museum, just to give you a sense of that, uh, to be asked as a white South African to be operationally in charge of the first heritage institution of democratic South Africa at a place with such symbolic meaning, Robben Island. And on the 1st of January, 1997, to actually have the keys of the prison in my hands and uh, to give it to an ex-political prisoner who'd come there before in chains to unlock and throw open those doors after the island had been a place of banishment and pain for 300 years. All the unwanted of society uh, dumped there in this sandy spot in Table Bay where when you come into the port, you see the beautiful Table Mountain, you know, was a very profound experience. And that's what us as South Africans have been challenged in very deep ways in the past few decades. Um, And it's made our lives tough on some levels, but immeasurably rich on others. And um, that whole process, of course, still continues. There was no before democracy and after democracy, a kind of from darkness to night. It's a continuous struggle with complexity and contradiction, and also in sport. So thanks very much for having me on. Now, uh, Andre, what you were talking about handing the keys to a, a former prisoner, was that prisoner President Nelson Mandela? No, uh, his name was Liso Ngungwana. But I did have the privilege of sitting in the cell with Madiba, and he did that very seldom. 
you know, when um, we had every visiting statesman coming from Clinton and Castro to Arafat and the kings of Norway and Sweden and all sorts of people, uh, it was compulsory and he, off, he sometimes came for them. I have um, wonderful memories, for instance, of sitting with him and Grasa Michelle, his wife, who's an amazing woman in her own right, who'd previously been married to the president of Mozambique, which is quite amazing. Uh, but um, and and Hillary Clinton and and Bill Clinton, and uh, just to sit in on a on tea in the space where he'd been imprisoned while they were talking, for instance, is just one of hundreds of memories that I have of that place. It, it was just quite an incredible experience. But the ordinary stories of prisoners, how they made a saxophone, for instance, from Flotsam and Jetsam, picked up on the shoreline and actually managed to make it play, played music on it. Uh, they called it uh, then Kumanephone, which is one of the prisoners' names. He came back after the prison had been closed and the museum opened and actually played on that saxophone. So that was the notion of the triumph of the human spirit, how people could come out of such a brutish place uh, with such narrow mentalities governed by, and then to try and be universal and open up the space. But of course, the progress since democracy has been very complicated also, with the massive levels of socioeconomic inequality and poverty in South Africa. So until we manage to get on top of those things, the kind of stability of the democracy that we want is going to be in question. And we can't, you know, the dreams haven't quite worked out like we have, but it's still a place of great inspiration for me. Well, we'll come on later on to discuss uh, the current state of affairs. Um, you've just written your most recent book. You've got a tremendous of is pitched battles, sport, racism, and resistance with Peter Haim, who is who we who we interviewed Richard and I uh, a few months ago. You've got a very different background from Peter Hain, haven't you? Peter came from a sort of uh, activist, anti-apartheid white family, but you you came from a very traditional family, didn't you, Andre? Very much uh, part of the white South African consensus. Yes, definitely. And there are very, very few of uh, white South Africans who can claim what Peter Hain and his family can claim. Um, people from the left who joined the struggle in those dark days already were very, very few and far between. And um, so I grew up in a rural town, Queenstown, in what was called is called the border region. And that is literally because 10 wars of dispossession were fought in that area and it was called the border between the colony and what black people were regarded as in those days basically barbarians who needed to be uh, <clears throat> forcefully included and christianized and so on to become civilized in inverted commas so that's the kind of mentality that um, gave rise to apartheid a hundred years later and I grew up in the 60s in Queenstown in a space that was very, very conformist in that sense. 
One of the things one would ask, you know, uh, did you ever have contact with with black children in that very rigidly segregated society at that time? Uh, did you ever play together, even pick up games? And um, the answer was, uh, in fact, living on a farm 10 miles away from the closest town, um, surrounded by mountains, my entire world up till the age of six was tied up with black families and, and black playmates. Uh, to the extent that I was able to learn the language, very fortunately, Kosa, or Isi Kosa. And actually, when I was time for me to go to school on day one, I ran away. I ran out of the playground. The one road I knew from the farm to my aunt's house and said in Kosa, I want to go back home now. I've had enough of school. Uh, which they still tease me about today, the professor who can't get enough of reading and learning. But uh, so, so it was this feudal society almost where I learned some very profound, deep things. I think it's um, the psychology of it all one has to work out. But that uh, feeling of belonging to Africa, which is what an Africana means, um, and just getting a sense in a physical sense of our uh, space, of where home was for me was very important. But um, what's very interesting to read about your upbringing, Andre, and to hear a bit more about it now, because it doesn't seem like a preparation for what I think has been your life work, life's work of mm. restoring the lost history of um, mm. non-white cricket in in South Africa. Mm. What led you into that cause? What was, you know what um, what determined that path for you? I think this uh, simple answer is my love for sport, firstly, but more relevant, I think, by the time I, I'd left school, I saw myself as wanting to get out of the suffocating small place that I grew up in, go to the big city and university and try and make a difference to change South Africa or to contribute to change. Because by the time I left school in 1972, the Dolivera affair had happened in 1968. And the demonstrations led by Peter Hayne, the first direct action protests on sport, where the comfortable relationship between Britain and South Africa in sport was ruptured. Um, the Victorian kind of culture that had persisted up until the 60s with the Cultural Revolution happening then and decolonization. Uh, as I later discovered, meant also that my own world and complacent way of looking at sport was being ruptured and, and I was being forced to look at new things. So as a young person, I wrote my first cricket book while I was an undergraduate. It was called Cricket in Isolation, The Politics of Race and Cricket. And at a time when the apartheid system was being forced to pretend to be reforming so that they could maintain their international contacts and relationships in sport. I was very much in favor uh, as a young person leaving school to, um, to be part of that change. But the problem is at that stage, I was seeing it from within the framework, from within the bubble of white society as if we've played a cricket match against some black people, that means South Africa's changed. And uh, as my experiences took me along, 
I discovered that that wasn't the case at all and that it necessitated me taking much bigger steps and much more profound kind of directions. When did you write that first book, Andre? We were at Stellenbosch, because you went to Stellenbosch first and then on to Cambridge, didn't you, as a PhD yes, student? So, mm. um, interestingly, I went to Queen's College, a school in uh, Queenstown, and Tony Gregg uh, was an old boy of Queen's College. His father had uh, come to Queenstown in the war um, as part of the RAF as a trainer and fell in love with a local girl and he ended up editing the Daily Representative. So Tony Gregg came back. Uh, my first ever article published was on him. And it was, is it worth trying still to play for South Africa? He's been thinking now if perhaps it would be a better way to play for England to follow that path. And that was, uh, I think, in 1960, uh, 70, that I wrote that. So. We had this tradition of Sussex professionals who came, uh, Langridge, Thompson, and others. And um, I was from an Afrikaans background. My mother was um, Catholic and English speaking. That caused a, a row in the family, but she was, she'd been orphaned. So my entire family was Afrikaans, but my home language was English. And I went to an English school and probably was one of the first windows ever to play cricket. <laughs> so, uh, but it was just, you know, one of those, your versions of, of public schools uh, where sport and all these uh, cultures of sport and cricket as a gentleman's game and all that, one was brought up in, you know. So going to Stellenbosch, I had this ambition to also a famous sports playing uh, university, the biggest rugby club in the world at that time. I used to love rugby and play it, um, but then became a better cricket player and was drawn into cricket. And the amazing thing about Stellenbosch was how even now when I look back on it, um, how sanitized that life was. Um, Stellenbosch sort of saw itself as a Cambridge and a Harvard of, of Africa, but it was totally white. And the idea behind the university was on stand for an idea. It means we stand for an idea. And that idea was articulated by D.F. Milan, the apartheid prime minister in 1948. So it pretends, it still does pretend to be enlightened, but is actually stuck in a deep kind of racial structural uh, identity. And it was that where I then, as a young person, perhaps started making my first statement on my own to try and write about this thing called mixed cricket and to support it. At that stage, feeling very sorry for white South Africans being excluded and saying, now let's play this and sort of get back into test cricket where we belong because we're the strongest in the world, that kind of thing. But as I started writing this book, I met for the first time black cricketers, the Black Western Province team and Hassan Hauer went to his home and had an interview. And I mean, it just within one afternoon, the, basically, once the shackles come off, you can never go back and close those doors behind you. So I spent an evening with the Western Province cricket team 
Uh, we never say non-white here in South Africa because it's a negative term used to uh, about people in those days under apartheid. You were a non-person. But, uh, you know, to, to meet black cricketers playing first-class level with deep cultures, listen to a person like us now. When I went back that night, you know, I just learned more than I'd ever learned from any books. And uh, that then started me questioning deeper. And in the end, I decided I can't sit on the fence and say I'm against apartheid. I have to actually, things had got so bad by the 80s that I've got to take a position. So I jumped off this big, tall fence I was on, like most uh, so-called liberal-minded South Africans, and um, landed in the safest embrace and blankets, people, you know, were there to catch me. It was like you had to, it was like jumping from one paradigm to another. It was an act of faith in some kind of way. Uh, maybe one needed to have a bit of courage or brave, bravery to do it, but the rewards were immense in terms of my own humanity and my own development as a person and the richness of the experience and the way it just opened up things for me and in, uh, enabled me to free myself as well as a South African. Just to put some of some context into that, Andre, so there were quite major attempts led by Ali Bakker and others, weren't there, and Colin Cowdery in England to sort of create a, a sort of accommodation which would keep a, a, apartheid South Africa in world cricket, i.e. it would have a couple of black cricketers in the team or something like that. Mm. And, and that was uh, the, when you were at Stellenbosch. You were sort of what you're saying there is you were you sort of warmed to that a bit because that was it. You know, for white South Africa, you know, R.G. Pollock, Lindsay Barlow. You had a great team, Proctor. And when you met Hassan Hawa, describe mm. him a bit more. He was the leader, the political leader of sporting black black mm. South Africans wasn't he is that just describe him a bit because you've there's a momentous moment in your life mm. you've just described you went to mm. see Hassan Hawa and you came away a different person with a different political understanding yeah Hawa and the cricketers themselves and then just to see the normality of their kind of uh, knowledge of the game and their love for the game and their skills because uh, I watched a match so um Eisenhower was the first sports administrator to stand up to apartheid repression after the 60s when all repression, um, you know, organizations were banned, Mandela and others were thrown into prison. And there was a very, very big repressive silence. And he was he was someone who would be very feisty and say, we're not going to be co-opted by these semi-apartheid plans of cricket. They wanting to do it for their own sake without uh, really meaning to change and was quite provocative in the way in which he used media. He was very skilled in the media. So he became like uh, like Peter Hain abroad. He, he became one of the domestic kind of troublemakers, you know, um, enemy number one for South African sport because he was trying to stick a spanner in the works kind of thing. But that was part of this resilience of the resistance against apartheid, that despite those conditions, people kept speaking out and he was in the forefront of that. So that that was a lot, meant a lot to me. It was before Ali Baha became 
prominent as a as an administrator. He comes in the in the 1980s, when in an attempt now, once isolation is clearly coming because politically the apartheid reform is inadequate, then the next step is to try and buy your way into world sport. Uh, following the Packer series, out came the checkbooks. Um, the government subsidized sponsors to the tune of 90% if they brought international rebel teams out. So they effectively paid for the tours and the tours were extensions of South African apartheid foreign policy, basically, uh, to counter what was called the total onslaught against, um, again, Western civilization on the southern point of Africa, I suppose. So um, a, a cricket change uh, until democracy came was really always inadequate, superficial and dishonest, I would say. Um, and I then chose at a certain point to cross the line, as it was said, and to play in the what what is called non-racial sport. You, it must have cost you many friendships. Yeah, it, I think uh, the loneliness of the journey is definitely one of the things that even today, you 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 know, are you a permanent outsider or not? I suppose that's one of the questions that one has to have a conversation with yourself about because the conversations here, once you've made a move like that, it's almost like um, a brand mark on your forehead. Uh, this guy supports the ANC, he's a, a subversive against the government. You know, in a, in a repressive society, everything, the propaganda is geared towards not self-interrogating or inviting differences of opinion. It's about galvanizing everyone behind a project to try and control what in the end couldn't be controlled. Before you made that um, dramatic move into non-racial sport in South Africa, Andre, you'd played some first-class matches for Border, didn't you? Uh, yes, um, Richard, I, I was fairly, you know, I, pl I did better at cricket than my first love of rugby, although I also played that for at university as well, but not at a high level. So I played for border schools at cricket, and that was the route that our school, you know, the Greggs, Kenny McEwens, Ian Gregg and others followed. So I captained the provincial team uh, or the county team as a youngster at the school's tournament and then went to Stellenbosch, which um, Eddie Barlow came as our coach in my first year. So I spent six years playing with Barlow and it was an amazing experience. One of the most dynamic cricketers uh, in South African cricket history, but as a person, irrepressible, a slip fielder who could catch anything and just had a self-belief that he could even bowl teams out and had an, he was a non-establishment guy, Eddie Barlow. So he didn't like fuddy-duddy control of sport. And at a time when sport was moving towards a professionalism, he was looking to make money out of it like he felt good players deserved. So he was a bit of, a, he was an anti-establishment guy, but as a cricketer, phenomenal to learn and listen. And he had a simple philosophy in those days that you, um, it's all about putting your 
a position under pressure and taking the pressure off you. The way you did that was when you're batting, you scored three runs and over, which is ridiculous to think of in today's context. But when you read the MCC Tour Council of 1957, Cowdery batted mellifluously for 42 minutes before he took his next single to mid, you know, to mid wicket or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Ross and all these guys writing about it are wonderful to read in today's terms. So Eddie had that philosophy and the at bowling, you kept the opposition under three and over. And the secret was to bowl line and length, not to try and bowl someone out every third ball and slip this way and bounce. It was just consistency and on-the-spot discipline. So he just like believed, and I've seen him bowl, you know, win a match in the last over of the day with, uh, with us needing to take the last wicket. I mean, he's done that before. I've also seen him um, in a, in a, we had an incredible team for club cricket um, in, in the late 70s, Garth LaRue, Peter Kirsten, Adrian Caper, uh, before that, Dennis Hobson, the great leg spinner, all played for our club, mm-hmm. Stellenbosch, and they play, practiced with us twice a week because the, the, top profession, the top state teams only played eight matches a season. So they did their practicing with us, you know. And um, one day we played against a club called Northern's Goodwood. Garth LaRue opened the bowling from one side. Um, At that stage, Kirsten was at backward point and the rest of us all behind the wicket. Uh, Stellenbosch had the hardest and quickest wicket in the Western world. (laughs) So fielding at slip was... uh, No picnic, yes. You you know, it was impossible to have soft hands with that Mm. kind of thing. But um, yes, so uh, Garth bowls the first over. Eddie bowls the second one now and... After two balls, he walks down the pitch, uh, strides out, measures it, and said, I thought so. This wicket, this wicket's one uh, yard too long. I don't bowl short. Huh. And they had to stop the game and redo the wickets. The club had given themselves a bit of space, given who they, they were going to face that wicket. <laughs> <laughs> don't blame them. Yeah. Mm. So that was Barley. He was just a... A character, you know, and he had this incredible ability. He went to Derbyshire and I think they won um, the county championships after two years or something. He came and coached Burland, one of the minor provinces. They won the B section within two years. He was very good with young people who were learners and would like follow and work hard and so on. But um, Sooner or later, he'd come into a confrontation with authority. That was his uh, kind of way. Andre, you were, you played in first-class cricket in England for Cambridge University. Mm. Um, you played a match, I see, in Cricket Archive um, in the company of Derek Pringle and against David Gower. That was, I think, your first mm. appearance. Um, what was it like to play at Cambridge? Was that the first time you'd actually played in a, in a multiracial environment? Yes, everything, all my cricket teams up until that time were completely, uh, you know, only white uh, players. Um, It was a wonderful opportunity to go to England. Uh, Having played in that very strong Stellenbosch team with those five superstars, really, um, to then uh, get a chance to play first-class cricket was a dream come true. 
I scored 61, I think, on debut against Leicestershire. And um, I remember Les Taylor was an opening bowler. Um, and Nick Cook was the spinner who later played for England. My first 12 runs in first-class cricket were three fours over mid-on. Uh, you know, like choosing his slow ball on the fifth one of the over. Or whatever it was. That was hardly done in English cricket. So that was <laughs> not um, debutant. Yeah. That was that was an amazing experience. Uh, someone reminded me I came in at thirty-five for two, and um, I. And I, th I think I could have done better that day because we'd overnighted halfway, so I was still fresh and got going again the next day. But I then straight drove Les Taylor and broke his finger. <laughs> and he had to leave the field after the second ball or something. And Brian Davidson came on all giggly and as a gimmick. From, from what and was then Rhodesia, yes. That's right. I lost my concentration uh -huh. completely try to try to hit him to leg and David Gower caught me at um, mid-wicket and I later watched him score a lot of runs I remember Gooch scoring 200 against us with you know fielding from at mid-wicket and watching that was special but we had a fairly good team with um, Derek Pringle playing him and I became very good friends and Robert Boyd uh, Moss was a very good player he played for Northants a bit so it was a wonderful experience and my top score was a 72 at Edgbaston which made my you know I had just a few moments at cricket that are special and I scored 72 against Willis Gladstone Small Dilip Dashi and Anton Ferreira which wasn't a bad attack, mm -hmm. and uh, got given the Man of the Match award uh, from by Tom Graveney, who was a, mm -hmm. a special person in the whole Dolivera thing as well. I think. Of course. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, it was an incredible experience. Just also to play club cricket on these field, you know, to see green grass that goes forever. When in South Africa we used to drought and stuff like that, um, boundary ropes and still lots of grass beyond it. <laughs> it was very unusual. And of course, the late summer evenings, watching tennis at Wimbledon at nine o'clock and so on, was just um, an amazing experience. So, but um, I've always fitted cricket in with a lot of other things. I, I got my PhD there, traveled a lot, and of course, learned a lot, seeing the world, um, arriving um, at Heathrow and seeing white workmen working on the road and laying pipes and tar and stuff and uh, shops closing it, you know, still open after it's got dark at four o'clock. Those are all like wonderful things that one never forgets now still. Um, it was just a, a, an experience of a lifetime. And I, by the time I came back, I had to make my move. I knew a part of the difficulty for white South Africans is the duality of their lives. They get brought up in decent homes to be decent people and treat others the same as you want them to treat you. But somehow or other, this didn't apply to black people. And I got to a point where I couldn't live like that. And also it was becoming very militarized and also total onslaught. You literally were for us or against us. And I then went in search of the struggle, actually. 
uh, where the heck does one actually join if you want to be part of it? And I drove into this township called Sochangube near Pretoria. A friend wanted to come with, and I said, no, I'm not sure how safe it will be. Drove into this dormitory location and found a meeting hall at a Catholic church and was really scared of what would happen because police monitored these things. And I walked through the doors of this place and there was just this energy and singing and the stuff that people were saying and so on. I knew I'd found where uh, I wanted to be. And that took me on a whole new journey um, in life. And uh, I'm so happy that I did that move. But I had to make that step myself. You've just done this momentous thing. You've switched sides from apartheid white South Africa to black South Africa. Both sides are going to be apprehensive of you or suspicious of you or angry with you, aren't they? Well, I I mean, this word generosity is what I want to stress that I received. Obviously, people will say this is a bit unusual. There were two other white people in that crowd of 300, so <laughs> a highly energized crowd, but there's there's always this acceptance by black South Africans that I've discovered that if you show a willingness to engage on a human level with people, they are there for you. And this is what one has seen in, I mean, Mandela's one sanctified vision of this, but the openness, the, the, the Ubuntu, the humanity that people had to draw on to survive segregation, colonialism, apartheid, and systemic exclusion, basically control of 300 laws that controlled black movement, labor, and where you could stay from cradle to grave, to be insulted and controlled daily, and and to still retain a humanity that then enables you to envision a future South Africa that where everyone can belong and that is democratic and open. It's the antithesis of exclusion and racism and so on. To say, uh, we are fighting for a South Africa where everyone belongs, where everyone can be a full person and a full citizen. And I experienced that in reality, because when you are in the struggle, and I don't think any person just wanders into those places, because by wandering in there, you are making a, a, a move and a gesture and people might think or wonder what this is all about, but it's not any white person who goes like for a Sunday drive and says, let's go and see what's happening in that hall or that uh, event. It's, it's a very big move before you actually do go through those doors. And um, so, Peter, yes, there was obviously the the doors closed behind you in a very loud way, the clanging of doors in white society. So for family, you know, they were scared for me. They were disappointed. My dad, and I, I don't say this easily, basically died thinking I'd betrayed my country. And it was very, very painful for me to bury him. But at the same time, I knew within myself that it, I had a very deep love for my father, that I was not against my country, I was for my country. 
But I stood in this Dutch Reformed church and saw the 500 eyes, pairs of eyes looking at me when I buried him. But that's where one feels the strength of what you're doing, I suppose, as well. It was very profound burying my father. And it was two years later that, my, that the Mandela was suddenly released. And, you know, my mother still said, yes, Andre's been saying this all the time. And, uh, two, you know, two years later, it was the in, becoming the in thing. But um, she, we also then, had, it's a long story. Uh, I married a woman who wasn't white, and uh, that also was difficult for her to accept. And she basically didn't want to see me, us or our children or our first daughter until she was born. But in the way South Africa is a miracle in many ways, she ended up living with us and she celebrated her 90th birthday uh, two weeks ago, um, looking after the grandchildren, loving them and them loving her. So family has been very important to me and how on that level, uh, there's been a kind of something that's worked in the way the country has not yet worked. But at the same time, it's full of contradiction. She hasn't changed all that much, but there's a lot she's learned. The kind of what the grandchildren have given her and got from her has been very profound from me. But it took, we had to get over a whole lot of things before that that ending point came. So how does one even start talking about the complexity of all these things? But definitely you, once I made that move, I had cut myself off from the mainstream in South Africa. In fact, I wasn't uh, allowed to watch cricket So at Newlands. So I remember one day, because it was double standards resolution where the non-racial cricketers said that we are not collaborating in any way with apartheid. And that means that anyone who goes and watches at Newlands will not be allowed to play here. That's how civil, you know, how sort of divided it was in effect, a kind of civil war happening at that time. And I was, I was in house sitting for a friend 50 yards from Newlands and hearing the crowds roaring. <laughs> it was a very bizarre, very bizarre kind of uh, thing. And this is where I'd always play, I'd played a few times and dreamt of playing. And now I was not going there. And during the Gatting tour, of course, we demonstrated the uh, Rebel tour. We stopped it. Uh, Cape Town was a hot spot. I did go around Newlands with intentions of thinking what I could do there. <laughs> and, so and there were there were very strong actions. We were disrupted. Bob Wellman Company at Avondale playing uh, were picked up by the police, and you know things things happened. But it was just this two worlds now in terms of of that, and in a sense politically as well. If you joined the the UDF, the United Democratic Front, which is the internal proxy for the ANC, you were basically choosing a very small crowd, but a very dynamic and growing um, sector of white society after the UDF came into being in 1983. And it said, we want South Africans to become part, uh, white South Africans to become part of the future. So the ANC, um, 
even at the height of the struggle, talked about creating divisions within the ruling bloc and opening up the broad front against apartheid. So there was space for us as white South Africans to participate, but not only in a formal political sense, in a genuine deep sense. And I was lucky to go to get a job at the University of the Western Cape. And that was a sort of hotbed of struggle in the 80s. And there were just, you know, my students today are in all sorts of amazing places and were incredible young people. And I still have some of my best friends are young students who gave me a lot of uphill in my first class. There's a white lecturer coming in now in 84 to talk to them, <laughs> or 85, and uh, ending up the best of friends and so on. So uh, we, you know, a movie can't tell our story. There's so many of these kind of stories in, in South Africa. And um, at the end of it, there's a kind of sense of, discovering your own humanity and your own place. Um, I feel very satisfied on, on many levels. And what I'd like, you know, in terms of South Africa today, I can't stand the kind of white victimhood that gets played out. So it's almost like the slave owners of yesterday are the victims today as well. First, it was the communists who tried to oppose them, and now they being there's no place for them in society. And I um, don't mind anyone criticizing however hard they want to criticize uh, the system today. And I'm one of those people. But you have to qualify to criticize first, and that is to acknowledge what happened in the past to acknowledge the exclusions that happened. And if you do that, then you have the same. And in fact, your rights are constitutionally guaranteed in South Africa. But until you can say what happened was wrong, then don't come and be the victim for a second time when the real victims need to be brought into the story and not erased from history like they always were. And that are some of the motivations that in my dual interests of history and cricket, I then started writing about the game. And there was a wonderful moment that set me off. And that was when I started my master's degree. I read a book called The Unification of South Africa by Leonard Thompson. And it was a standard kind of work, very good work, but it had two pages only on the black, the responses of black South Africans to unification. And this was basically, what did black people feel about ex being excluded from this new country called South Africa in 1910 when it was formed? And nothing was known about this. And I thought I'm going to try and do some research on this. Um, my supervisor said, you'll find nothing uh, because you know, nothing really happened in those days. And where would one find an archive and so on? And I had the most incredible good fortune. Because I came from the Eastern Cape and had learned to speak Kosa in a, in a modest way, and I also studied it as a major at university, I then uh, went to look at the first African newspapers in South Africa. 
This was the missionary press called Isigidimi Samakosa, which is the, the Christian Express. Before that, it had the, you know, the K-word Express was the name of it. And uh, then in 1884, a brilliant 23-year-old student and cricket lover, John Tengu Jabavu, started the first ever independent black newspaper in South Africa called Imvo Zabansundu, and that is Native Opinion. And what I then discovered, I went into the South African library, and I can still feel those yellow pages turning them over. And I was perhaps the first historian to, to have the space to, to go into detail in those only early newspapers. And out of them came, especially in the Kosa columns, there were four pages in English, four in Kosa. And the English pages would cover the colonial story. The mayor of Cape Town did this. The Prince of Wales did this last week in London. Um, Cecil John Rhodes announced this yesterday. But in the Kosa newspaper in the sections were the emerging black middle class coming out of 100 mission schools in the Eastern Cape, qualified in English, having learned even the classics in Greece, Greek classics, having um, become very eloquent in writing and knowing how to write, uh, put together newspapers, starting to form organizations. I couldn't believe what I read. The first editorial of this newspaper in 1884 said that the Port Elizabeth African team had played against the Port Elizabeth white team and had beaten the Craddock white team. This was in 1884, and I grew up in the 1960s with the assumption that black people had no kind of interest in rugby and cricket and had no knowledge of it and no history of it uh, because they were fixed in a kind of primitive mode of people who love dancing and hunting and stuff like that. It, these games weren't really for them. This was the total colonial and apartheid mindset that totally erased a history of 100 years that was suddenly opening up to me right there. Hundreds and hundreds of cricket reports from places that today don't play cricket. I started reading in Kosa. And, you know, it's Jabava wanted to send a team over to England at the same time as the Farsis from Mumbai were sending Dr. Pav. You know, all those guys. It was unbelievable to see that. And I was reading it from the people writing the story. We, you know, this one reporting from there. They sold the newspaper amongst each other as well. So there were up to 15,000 black voters in the Eastern Cape, unique in the colonial world. If you were educated and qualified with property, you could be a voter and a full citizen. And they started organizations. They started articulating a vision for a future South Africa in which everyone belonged. But instead of society opening up for them, like happened in, in, in the North, in Britain and America, where the, first the working class and then women were allowed in, society was expanded, the political society. In South Africa, instead of these voters being allowed to become part of the politics, union closed it down because golden diamonds meant the need was now for the highest amount of labor at the cheapest cost 
And you can't have this middle class who likes their tennis parties and cricket coming to spoil our project of making lots of money. Yeah. So this is when Rhodes introduced the um, colorblind cricket in 1894, the very month or two months that he introduced the Glenn Gray Act to make it more difficult for Africans to own property and to vote so that they could be forced into migrant labor through taxes and so on. So these things go together so much and the kind of social Darwinism and arrogance of the people who brought cricket to South Africa um, <clears throat> it just meant that they never saw black people as you, there was a wonderful window of opportunity in the 80s and 90s where black cricketers started the same intertown tournaments like the Canterbury Week in Kent in, um, led to the idea of a white intertown tournament for the champion bat in 1877, within two tournaments, black cricketers were playing the native intertown tournament and later the Malay intertown tournaments. These were precursors of provincial cricket. And in the same way that the whites then started playing international cricket and then uh, formalizing first class cricket in the 1890s, in the same decade that the county championship became official, and that the Sheffield Shield was started in Australia, the Bonato tournament, tournaments were started by black cricketers, excluded from the white society. Many of them were good enough to play at the top level. And um, Richard Perry and John T. Winch have just written this beautiful book about Crom Hendricks, who the English professionals played against for money after they beat South Africa in two days in a test match in 1891. And they said he's as good as the demon Spofforth. He's up in that uh, league. Amazing. And he must go in 1894 to England. And Rhodes blocked him, not for once, but for 10 years, Rhodes and his acolytes in the thing. And the, the main one, a total nasty, arrogant, racist, really uh, parading as a defender of civilized standards was Sir William Milton from Marlborough, played uh, rugby for England fullback in, in the 1870s. And <clears throat> he came to South Africa in the late 1870s with Anthony Trollope, the novelist. <laughs> and Trollope's first impressions of Cape Town were contemptuous. It seems like a poor, niggery, yellow-faced, half-bred sort of place with an ugly Dutch flavor about it. Africans he described as much more of a savage than the ordinary Negro that you find elsewhere. Now, this is the kind of English superiority that was in charge of cricket in South Africa. They almost wanted to be ultra superior and ultra English um, and formed the Western Province Cricket Club as the MCC of the Cape Colony. So all the kind of class distinctions um, uh, Corporal Beach, the first guy to score 200s in a match in South African first-class cricket, had to travel third class because he was a bandsman in the Cape Town when Cape Town went to Kimberley to play there. So these guys imported a kind of British snobbery that was totally inappropriate, um, but also made the club even more exclusive than it was in London and anywhere else. The club in the colonies was where the British celebrated their lifestyle, their superiority from the unadmitted millions. You know, 
Ramachandra Guru has written about that, about uh, India and so on. Now, Cape Town under, under William Milton were the most snobbish and exclusive. They didn't, they didn't venture even as far as Stellenbosch. They didn't play against Afrikaans players. They didn't play against people from other suburbs in Cape Town. They chose how they played. And it was all based on this kind of amateur ethos, which one saw in the early tours, where the amateurs and the professionals stayed in, used different dressing rooms, stayed in different hotels on the tours, and um, also traveled separately uh, when they went inland, because in those days they traveled by horse and cart a lot of the time. And the pros would take one route in another thing and the, and the amateurs would go in another one. So it was just built in arrogance and superiority. And the three pillars of racism in South African cricket were, first of all, conquest. So the British arrived in 1803, 60 sailing ships, shock and awe, like Iraq kind of thing, took over the Cape and within three months were playing at Greenpoint which is the second oldest ground after Calcutta outside of England in continuous use since for over 200 years. And that's where Amazing. I played my club cricket in non-racial sport as well. And that's where Dolivera, as Peter knows, also played. So um, from the start, it was a military game for the first 40 years. It's like, uh, you know, I've been to where the bomb dropped in Hiroshima and there's a baseball stadium across the, uh, across the road. I don't know when that was built, but it took 40 years of British military conquest before the first clubs were founded and the first schools um, started playing the game. So by that time, uh, the British rule was like imposing itself in a much more stronger way. But, and, and, and it followed the British conquest of Southern Africa. South Africa is more than a million square miles, and there were more than 15 wars of dispossession before that, over a century, that brought that about. And the way that cricket went from Cape Town by sea to Port Elizabeth, and then by sea to Durban, and then from those three places inland, all followed the British process of conquest. And so it was no surprise in 1877 that King Williamstown on the border between Land and the colony won the first tournament beating Port Elizabeth and Cape Town because they had soldiers there, including guys who played for Sussex and so on. Uh, you know, they, uh, the colonial authorities hired soldiers in the Cape Mounted Police from, from Britain to pursue these wars. So there were four or 5,000 British soldiers stationed in King Williamstown, and they had two of the best bowlers who won the tournament for them. So it's, it's, it's like totally linked up. The cricket was a game that followed conquest introduced by the army and followed it through South Africa. And the biggest cricket became almost a qualification for the colonial civil service. So Sir William Milton became Rhodes's private secretary after landing with his uncle Trollope, um, took over cricket. Captain South Africa was the guy who banned the first black player who was good enough. And that was one year before uh, the first 
black player to play for the West Indies. I think it was uh, Frank Waddell's grandfather and also a guy called Charles Oliveira, uh, sounds like Oliveira, who played in the Lancashire Leagues in the 1900s. Akram Hendricks was, would have been picked a year before them if we'd um, not had golden diamonds and people who wanted this exploitative form of capitalism that developed here. And, and then made it uniquely racialized in its, in, even in the colonial examples. So, Andre, um, I have to tell you, one of the things you've absolutely blown apart there is what we English cricket lovers were brought up to believe, that mm. the kind of the English were a benign force, an mm. anti-racial force in, uh, in South African cricket, yeah. and the Boers imposed it. And what you've shown is, of course, that is an English myth. Yeah. Um, apart from many other things you've shown us too. Um, very briefly, there's an, as you know, there's a huge uh, controversy in Britain about the Rhodes, uh, the Rhodes's legacy set up in the in the statue in, in Oriel College. And it's being presented, he had did lots of good, he was a great civilising force, mm. but on the other hand, he did this dark stuff too. Uh, and the statue should stand. How do you see it from a much more, in like, much more knowledgeable perspective? Mm. It's difficult to answer that question just quickly, you know, just like that. I'm personally, the my historical research and cricket and conquest in particular has now placed Rhodes in a historical context as, as a really an appalling kind of person. The influence on history is, is you know, um, really shocking and how people were dehumanized as part of that colonial sense of superiority without any problem. And how cricket was totally implicated in that. And that's what I wanted to actually say. It became a training ground for governing in the colonies. And I'm sure it applies to elsewhere as well, Lord Harrison, all those guys. Um, Six of the first 10 South African cricket captains became colonial administrators in Rhodesia. So Rhodesia was basically a private company taking over a country, like Trump wanted to buy Greenland, but like invading Granada and, you know, Banana Republic stuff. It was literally, he got the right roads to take over a country and run it under the British flag. And his administrator became Sir William Milton, the first uh, the cricket captain and the guy who banned the first uh, introduced the color bar. His prosecutor general was H.H. Castens, who was the vice captain on the first cricket tour to South Africa, uh, to England in 1894. Castens, uh, Olaf Schreiner, the great South African writer, who was in close contact with all the, you know, sort of British literary elite and so on. She wrote a book called uh, Trooper Peter Halkett of Mashonaland, where she showed basically the atrocities in Rhodesia to take over the country. So, and one of them was uh, the hanging tree in Salisbury, where people opposing the takeover of the country were basically hanged. And there's a photograph of Castens standing at the hanging tree with the body of, of um, Ambuya Nahando, who was a spirit medium and one of the resistors. And apparently the rope broke several times because they believed in luck that uh, 
she had special powers and said that something must be taken out of her pocket and then, you know, before she gets killed and so on. But what I'm trying to explain is that this photograph shows Castens there as the prosecutor general and witnessing the hanging. Major General Robert Poor is regarded as, or Poor, is regarded as one of the greatest all-rounders in British late 19th century sporting history. He won the Matabililand Tennis Championship, scored hundreds, and then during the week went and drove indigenous people into caves and dynamited them and so on. So those are three, uh, and, and six of the first 10 South African cricket captains were involved at, in high levels in this Rhodesian civil service. So the, the kind of total linkage between conquest and cricket is, is you're just irrefutable. And it, it stemmed from the fundamental disrespect shown to indigenous people, translated into cricket culture on top of class kind of attitudes and privileges. It just became a very ugly racism that, as Peter said, you know, the British need to own up to. And that comes to the statistics and the romance of cricket, because as you say, the, the, the story that we all have always read is this quirky English spirit that they played this wonderful game in, you know, sunny climates in innocent ways and so on is, is just totally a, a cover up for very, very serious things. So Rhodes, at the time that I wrote Finnish Cricket and Conquest, the students at UCT defaced his statue. And to me, that was a, a poetic kind of irony that 100, he took South African cricket into a hundred year cul-de-sac. The, the systematic suppression of human potential that came from breaking that black middle class that was emerging. They, they were, the main things in life were education and to be upright members of society. They worked hard. They were Christian in, in a way that was impeccably Victorian and so on. And yet they were stopped from becoming teachers and becoming newspaper owners, because not allowed to own property in certain areas and crushed as a group instead of society opening up to increase the participation of Black people. And that came down to Cecil. That was... Cecil John Rhodes uh, was the master sort of force in that respect. This uh, almost has been your life's work, and it's not over, is it, Andre? There's more to your, yeah. you're still engaged on it, aren't you? So in volumes three and four of the history of South African cricket from 1960 onwards, we're going to be adding another 500 games, another several thousand players who've never been recognised. And it's just in that act of recognition that we free up the game, that we ourselves can then enjoy cricket in a more innocent way. Andre, it's been absolutely fascinating hearing you um, describe your journey into this great life's work of restoring the lost history of victims of um, racial segregation in uh, South African cricket and indeed uh, work in South African society as a whole. Uh, we must have you back to tell more of the story because <laughs> I think we're only up to 1900 and there's uh, so much rich history to come. But for now, thank you very much for being with us, Andre. And... Um, 
It's goodbye for me, Richard Heller, on an even sunnier southeast London. It's clouded over a bit here in Wiltshire, and we get the weather first. Goodbye from me. Thank you very much, everyone.